Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. podcast where we vociferously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are, honestly, surprisingly good showings from an author whose other work has not been so, so hot for us. In spiteful reclamation of their apex source material, novelizations flesh out the world of a film by parsing the internal politics of organized crime. While these embellishments lead to a juicier product, the prose itself is lean and trim, maintaining the feeling of the onomatopoeia of a comic book's violence without literally reusing it. In action, these books are thrilling, while in interiority, they are melancholy, striking that balance perhaps even better than the film that birthed them. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Road to Perdition is a 2002 film directed by Sam Mendes. It follows Michael Sullivan, a Prohibition-era gangster whose entire family is put in danger when his eldest son, also named Michael because they're Irish, that's not why, I'm so sorry, uh, witnesses a mob execution. In order to rid the two, it's more like because they're Catholic, probably, right? Anyway. Yeah, Irish Catholic would do it. <laughs> I have a ton of questions, and we'll get into this, but I have a ton of questions. I don't understand the the religious lines that this society breaks down across at all. <laughs> Fine. Well, island? No, like um, <laughs> when they, when in the interiority in this book, when they'll be like, those damn Protestants. And I'm like, I don't understand this. Oh, yeah, that I is the, that is you the religious line. Were you raised in any religion at all, island? Andrew? Yeah, I was raised like, I'm from Connecticut. I was raised like Connecticut Catholic, which is that like I I went to Sunday school and I read stories about Jesus Christ, but like I don't really feel like I understand the the relationship between all of the different sects, if that makes sure. sense. Okay. Well, it all starts back in the 17th century. <laughs> Literally. Um, Annie will <laughs> tell us all about the trouble. <laughs> I could do my 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 family are uh, Northern Irish Catholics. So my dad's from Belfast, so um, I know know all about that. Before we move on, then <laughs> what's what's the actual blank versus blank? What are they, and who do they hate in this book? Oh, so they're Catholics, Irish Catholics in this book, um, and yeah, they uh, will have a animosity to Protestants. Generally, because in Northern Ireland, well, in all the whole of Ireland, um, 
when it was colonized by the British, uh, the uh, settlers were Protestants. And so it was kind of, it was a kind of class but ethnicity thing where you would have Scottish or English settlers who would be Protestants and would own the land and poor Irish Catholics would work on the land. Um, And when they had the War of Independence, uh, the way it was settled was they kept the North, which had the majority of the Protestants um, in the UK and the South went down to, because that was majority Catholics, um, became the Republic of Ireland. Um, But it still became a very fraught issue known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland um, because there were still Catholics who in the north of Ireland who were heavily discriminated against, couldn't get jobs, uh, were segregated into ghettos, etc, etc. The wild thing about it is that like this book takes place in the United States, obviously, and there's that Mm. one part of the book where they go into a Protestant church and the son is like, are we safe here? I was like, whatever this conflict is, do they really think they're about to get gunned down in this Protestant church? They're they're running from a lot of things in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, that would have been the kind of conflict of the old country coming to the coming to the new. Um, totally. That does feel plausible in this universe, too. Yeah. But it's kind of one of those things where I don't actually know. I don't know if that sectarianism would actually particularly cross over to the US because I would assume nearly all of the Irish immigrants who came over would be Catholics because it, mm. was, it was mainly kind of poor working class migration, right? Um, I right. think that yeah. uh, there was just like a lot of anti-Irish in general racism mm. or, you know, bigotry, which then probably extends to Catholics to the point that like when we elected a Catholic for president, people were like, well, that's insane and dangerous. We should never have done that. <laughs> and then they killed yeah. him. Wow, we were just talking about we were. JFK right before we started recording. Yeah. JFK Avatar 2, Road to Perdition. <laughs> Hannah, I'll, I'll give you the floor Thank again. you. Anyway. Annie, thank you for that explanation. That is, I hope that's helpful, Andrew. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and to our listeners. Anyway, in order to rid the two Michaels of the targets on their backs, Michael the Elder must court and then betray prominent mob puppet masters Frank Nitty and Al Capone in the hopes of making himself such a hated foe that it becomes easier to ally with him than to eliminate him. Woo! Will the sentence ever end? (laughs) So complicated and convoluted. What Michael may fail to consider, however, is that the father figure who wants him dead favors family over logic and that neither man will be willing to choose morality over kin. Okay. The novelization of Road to Perdition was written by Max Allen Collins, who had also written the original graphic novel. The edition we read was published by Brash Books in 2016, because the first edition he was mad about. Okay, I'm going to introduce our guest and then we'll get into mm-hmm. that. Because this is this is unprecedented territory as far as adaptation goes for us. Um, a writer, a researcher, the UK correspondent for the podcast QAnon Anonymous, Annie Kelly. Great to have you back. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Third time on the podcast and equally as thrilled as the first. you picked road to perdition off of my extremely comprehensive list of novelizations what is it about this movie that you're drawn to i feel like maybe the first time i reached out to you about the podcast you were like i love jude law (laughs) i do really like jude law but with a specific caveat and i only like jude law in villain roles 
I don't really like Jude Law when he plays like leading man. I don't, he never convinces me. He like I, he doesn't have that kind of romantic energy to me. I like him when he plays kind of villainous, kind of slimy little creatures. Um, mm-hmm. So particularly in Road to Perdition, I think he's absolutely excellent. I remember there was a year, maybe 2000, maybe 2000. There was a year where he was in seven movies. You guys remember this? 2004. Four, I think that was the okay. Alfie uh, yes. Lemony Snicket. Yeah, uh, yeah he, uh, <laughs> yes, and then uh, uh, Chris Rock made a joke about it at the Oscars, and Sean Penn, humorless as he is, said, uh, "Actually, Chris Jude is a very accomplished actor, and how dare you for you know?" It's like, wow, there's never going to be a more controversial Chris Rock appearance at the Oscars <laughs> than this. Oh. <laughs> the uh, the year that that was happening, he was interviewed on the TV Guide channel, and I just remember them being like, wow, seven movies, that's awesome. And they're talking about Alfie specifically, a movie I haven't seen. And Alfie, right, is about a guy trying to find love. That's the impression I sort got. Of. And they, both the interviewer and Jude Law, were talking about it in such a way where they were like, it's just crazy that he's having trouble finding happiness and everyone was just trying not to say because he's so hot <laughs> yeah Alfie maybe works a little better when it's Michael Caine yeah yeah <laughs> in the Jude Law pantheon where's this character uh fall for you Annie how do you feel about Maguire the assassin I mean I would say this is peak Jude Law for me really even um, with the hair situation <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, because I've actually, I haven't actually seen the film recently and I didn't, I deliberately didn't watch it because I didn't want it to like sway my reading of the book. I wanted my reading Mm -hmm. of the book to be as pure as possible. So like I remembered that, yeah, Michael is played by Tom Hanks and I remembered that Maguire is played by uh, Jude Law. But like, I think I maybe like constructed a different Jude Law than actually plays him in the film. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said the hair thing, but I don't actually in my in my mind he's always just got that little bowler hat on. I do think the book describes him as like shockingly handsome and I was like, "Oh, of course, Jude Law." And then mm. you see him in the movie and he takes off his little hat and he has like a really terrible like balding situation, <laughs> uh which is obviously purposeful, but made me upset. Yeah. Bald cap comb over bad teeth. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like they it's like they didn't trust the audience to have someone as like naturally beautiful as early two thousands Jude Law as their villain. They're like they they won't know they won't know they should be scared of him. We have to put him on in a in a like comb over and whatever. Annie, I think that was it exactly. I think that's exactly yeah. what they were thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's like again, I think a real shame because I think it's not a trust of Jude Law's talents. Mm-hmm. Because his talent is playing slimy, villainous characters who you don't care how good looking he is. It's it like, you know, he's detestable. Yeah, I think they really overdo it with the makeup and the hair mm. and the bad teeth. Because, yeah, I, I think it's kind of better if he's this sort of charismatic photographer. Oh, yeah, that this, uh, this you know, this journalist, this photojournalist who's, who's rich and famous, he doesn't need a side gig. But, yeah, uh, yeah he's, he's so despicable to look at that uh of course he's a hired killer like Mm. what else would you do if you had that haircut and (laughs) 
Yeah, because the character's whole thing is basically that he he talks his way into crime scenes, right? Mm. So it kind of makes sense in my head to be imagining two th- 2000s Jude Law, you know, because you're like, oh, yeah, that guy probably could charm you, but also could convincingly be a charming psychopath. This all sounds like I really hate Jude Law. I have no idea what he's <laughs> like personally. This is just, this is just my my opinion on where his acting talents lie. It's almost as if, and I, I think we're going to get ahead of things with this, but uh, Jude Law might have been uh, better suited for the Connor role. Like, I mean, that is what we mm. saw Jude Law as up until that moment. He was still relatively new, you know, Gattaca and Talented Mr. Ripley, huge splash. Uh, I th- this might have been his first movie with his new nose. Or, or, or do you have his new nose by... He has uh, a different nose? He's had a nose Ripley. job? Oh, Hannah, watch Gattaca <laughs> and you will be shocked. He, he, he has got quite the, the, the schnoz, you know, still a handsome guy, still like, you know, the guy who Ethan Hawke wishes he were. But um, but yeah, it, it is. Uh, I, I think that Connor would have been the natural casting choice for Jude Law at this point of his career. But I think they, you know, they, they want to play with it and, and like, mm. ooh, can we make this guy ugly and nasty and scary? Um, and, you know, and we'll give uh, Connor to this no-name guy named Daniel Craig. It's almost uh, like the movie's poorly cast. <laughs> I, I like Hannah's premise here, and I think that we can fill the whole podcast with it. Hannah, go off. You've got feelings on this movie, I think which you had not seen I before, I had not seen right? the movie before, no. So I read the book, and I was, like, imagining the characters in the sort of way, you know, one might. Then I watched the movie and I was like, none of these people work for me in these roles at all. And maybe I would feel differently if I had seen the movie before reading the book. But like, it was so like Tom Hanks, I think is like so unbelievably wrong for the part. He's doing his best, but he's not good. Um, I think Daniel Craig is poorly cast. Paul Newman is fine, but like could be more sinister. He's just like too. I like Newman a lot. I mean, he's the best, you know, like he, he can stay. I think Jude Law is not being used to his full potential. Hecklin can stay. He's a baby. And then, like, who else even is there? Like, I think the main roles that you really need to work don't work. Yeah, it's, I was casting in my mind, and I think you're. I think you're right, Hannah. I cast in my mind uh, Mr. Looney Senior as Christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Connor Looney as Michael Shannon in my head. Interesting. See, I had Michael I Shannon mean, as Michael Sullivan. No, yeah, I can see that. Actually. Who I think has like thug energy, but is like you can if he wants to be a good guy, you believe it. He's also like funny enough, Michael Shannon. I could not believe it when I found out that he is not actually Irish. Because you know, like lots of lots yeah. of actors that you see play Americans tend out to turn out to be Irish or English or Scottish, and uh, like Michael Shannon to me. I mean, for one thing, there's that name right which is just like yeah real irish name and like he the, the guy has just like the most irish face i've ever seen <laughs> not on an irishman <laughs> just, i mean his family is irish i would guess he's just they of, they've of got an american be. they surely gotta be there's a possibility that unless we do like you know man of steel that we could like never discuss a michael shannon movie which is so sad because his career he he pops late enough in life that he's not really Getting into the novelization era so much. Bad Boys 2? Is there a Groundhog Day novelization? He's in Bad Boys 2? Yeah, he is. Wow. Very early Michael Shannon. Wow. I I love 
everyone's Michael Shannon casting. Uh, frankly, in any role, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take <laughs> yeah. them. Uh, I because w- I also play the recasting game when I read a novelization of a of a movie I haven't seen in a while. At least I had seen this, but it had been almost since it came out. Uh, I wasn't thinking so modern because modern Michael Shannon, perfect. I was thinking back to uh, early two thousands, and everybody I was, casted him in their heads. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going with uh, uh, a younger David Strathairn in that role. I kind of that, that's who I was picturing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I I do love Plummer as uh, Mr. Rooney. That's very good. Yeah, I couldn't. It was like he was so perfectly in my head that it actually surprised me when I then like looked up the casting and saw it was Paul Newman. This cast was full of surprises for me. Like I would open up IMDb and be like, "What? Yeah, (laughs) Stanley Tucci? You know? Yeah, Stanley Tucci. I forgot. And then yeah, and I was thinking. Like, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, who is the kid in this movie? It was just some kid who never <laughs> went on to do anything else ever, right? We've never seen this kid ever again. And I was like, well, let me hop over to IMDb, just see whatever happened to that kid. Probably one and done credit, right? No, it's that Tyler Hecklin is what you That's how him, I Hannah? say it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was blown away because uh, when I saw him in uh, Everybody Wants Him, I was like, ooh, this guy is brand new. Never seen this kid before. Teen but, Wolf. Wow, yeah. Now he's TV's Superman, which I I'm so happy his Superman, bunny teeth yeah. and sticky outy ears get to be Superman. <laughs> really special to Look, me. Look, we'll get back on topic, but everybody wants some, Johnny, that there was a weird gap of like three years there, and we're through it. There's a weird gap of three years where it was like, when is Glenn Powell going to pop? Yep. I remember <laughs> that movie, and it was it got to be so long, I guess because Top Gun was delayed, Yeah. that I was like, did it just not happen for this guy? I know he was the front runner for the uh, young goose role in Maverick, and it came between him and uh, uh, Miles Teller. And uh, I think at Tom Cruise's insistence, they had to find a role for Glenn Powell because, yeah, obviously this guy's a star. I, I don't know why it took so long. I want to go to bat now for the casting of the movie, which I like. <laughs> okay. I think that Daniel Craig has the worst American accent that's ever been done. That being said, he's scary. He's scaried in that scary in that wet-eyed way <laughs> where you see a dude who's like a tough guy and he's just sort of like dead in the face and you're like, okay, I get it. You're a tough guy. You see a dude who's dead in the face and it also kind of seems like he could just cry at any moment and you're like, that's a killer. That's an unstable man. I don't believe when he gets bullied by an old man though. Like when Paul Newman like slaps him around, I'm like, I don't buy it. He could push that old man down. <laughs> but it's about... Family dynamics. I know this. I know this. But there's a type of like blonde, watery-eyed, like snivelly baby boy who would be bullied by his dad, and I don't feel like Daniel Craig is that boy. Interesting enough, the press for this movie, the the sort of news cycle at the time when it came out, was, "Hey, everyone." You've never heard of this guy before, but just you wait. We're about to make a star here with this Daniel Craig guy. Just you wait. He's he's going to be huge. And the movie came out and people barely noticed or liked him. And then he just <laughs> continued to, you know, have supporting roles in films like Sylvia and uh, Enduring Love. And then just uh, two years later, not even, uh, they get the Bond announcement. It's just because this is not the right fit for him, Andrew. Who is this guy? Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, people were shocked that he got. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he was quite he was quite big over here because Layer Cake was a very big movie. Over yes. Here. Yeah. But I imagine it was in that whole 
sea of like cockney gangster movies which i don't really like know if they're ever particularly translated over to the united states enough yeah, I mean, the, like, early Guy oh, yeah. Ritchies were very hot over here. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? And uh, yeah. so some of them bled. I mean, I saw Layer Cake in, like, 2007, probably. Oh, it was a really, really bad movie, but it was very big. <laughs> I've talked about Layer Cake on the podcast before. It This might have changed, but as of about six months ago, you could only watch it on IMD, IMDb TV with, like, two hours <laughs> of ads, and I did. Uh, some of us <laughs> own the DVD, my friend. <laughs> Okay, well, I do. I also own it, but I, like Annie, don't like it. I don't know why I own it. I didn't like it when it came out. I I think I just like the Duran Duran music in it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, I don't know. It was, again, I think, yeah, the it was part of this kind of, yeah, Cockney, Cockney gangster wave, which I think had some, you know, some genuinely good movies. I thought like Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels was a genuinely fun little like heist caper movie. But it meant like a lot of dreck got put out afterwards because people were like, we have to make the new Lockstock, right? It um, really was a movement around then. Uh, Gangster Number One was another uh, mm-hmm. big one with uh, McDowell and Paul Bettany, I remember. There, there was quite a slew of them. And uh, if I had to guess, uh, several of them didn't even make it stateside. I'm sure Annie experienced yeah. way more than we did. Yeah, no, and yeah, most of them were terrible, to be honest. But I think, yeah, I think Daniel Craig basically cut his chops as just like playing like a convincing, I guess, thug, Mm -hmm. Um, which, yeah, then really upset people because James Bond isn't meant to be a thug. James Bond is meant to be cool and calm and, you know, smooth. But that was like the direction those movies were going with. They wanted a bit of a rougher, grittier Bond well, I don't know. That's a whole other thing. People are like, people were mad about that, that he was rougher and grittier, but then also they were mad that he's the one that's like, but I want a steady girlfriend. I like that for me. <laughs> they also didn't like that he was blonde at the time. That was a big controversy. Yeah, Which is silly because Roger thing, Moore was it? blonde as well. So he shut was up. pretty blondish too, yeah. But uh, everyone kept saying, hey, just wait until you see what he looks like in a bathing suit. And we waited. And it's like, oh, okay. You, you, you got us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i like rooney too i think that newman as rooney has this quality to him it's he, he's he's pretty old paul newman in this movie his last movie, and he's right? playing it, it that might be true and he's playing really old he's playing like this sort of panic in his eyes this like where you feel like he could just drop dead at any moment mm-hmm. and I, I feel that way. He feels like he feels like, you know, jittery in a way that that is concerning. And he also plays the entire role with the frustration of like I don't know how to get this damn Netflix to work, which <laughs> I think really underscores everything that's going on in regard to Connor, where it's like even though they're not restating it over and over again, there's this feeling in the movie of oh no, it's very important who the successor to this man is. Let's talk about Max. Let's talk about this book. This trajectory is something we've never seen before, which is Max Allen Collins, a guy who we've read two other novelizations from. We read Wind Talkers and we read, what was the other one? Um, U.S. Marshals. Both of these, he's like a gun for hire, right? So, the studio is like, oh, he writes novelizations, have him come in and adapt this script. He has nothing to do with the script. In this case, 
Max Allen Collins writes the graphic novel Road to Perdition, which at least in graphic novel circles is highly acclaimed. It gets onto the desk of a big studio exec through a little bit of, like, you know, professional connections, a little bit of personal connections, and the studios are like, this would be a great movie. Spielberg, in particular, takes an interest in it, sets it up with Tom Hanks, then is like, I am directing a million movies because I'm 2001 Steven Spielberg, so someone else can take this. The movie gets made without Max Allen Collins' involvement. I'm sure he gets a, a big paycheck from it. Then they want to novelize it because that industry still exists, and they give it to Max Allen Collins, the author of the original graphic novel, and herein his own little tragedy begins. Hannah, do you want to recap what information we sort of get about his yeah. uh, involvement with the novelization? So he writes a novelization, and he turns it in, and the company says like whoa there's a bunch of stuff in here that's not in the movie and he's like i know it's my story <laughs> so i have some additional ideas and context that i want to put in and they go oh, no 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 cut out all the what? stuff that's not in the movie you can only have the stuff that's in the movie that's what a novelization is and he's like uh that's not cool but does it or allows it to be done and is mad about it for, I don't know, 10, 15 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point when, like, self-publishing, it seems like, becomes a thing. And he's like, finally, I can release my complete novel of Road to Perdition, which becomes what we read, the expanded edition, technically really? under brash books, but this feels really self-published, you know what I mean? To me. Yeah, there's something weird with these where uh, they feel like the... The cover, which I like these books, but they feel like the cover is put together in like some sort of Photoshop. And they're also weirdly a little more expensive than a paperback should be. Like all of them are like $18. Mm. There's also like the paper quality, the binding quality. It just feels self-published. Not to be rude to self-publishing, which I respect, but there is a different quality of book you get than if you like publish through HarperCollins. It's... It's just a fascinating situation because we see this all the time with novelizations, that someone adds a bunch of scenes, adds a bunch of dialogue. Usually it shows passion. Usually like what mm -hmm. novelizationists add, if they take that liberty, is great. But in most cases, they are literally making stuff up. This guy was going, I'm putting stuff in the book because it was in the story you based your thing off of. I'm reinserting things. And in my skim through the graphic novel, I can basically confirm, like, the whole scene with Al Capone is in there. He really was just like, let me take back some things that you couldn't fit mm. into a feature film. Then, this guy basically does a James Cameron avatar thing, where he, 15 years later puts this book out as he wants, and in rapid succession, puts out three sequels. I don't understand how there can be sequels to this. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I don't get it. I don't either. There are two more novels, one entitled uh, Road to Purgatory and one entitled Road to Paradise. Sure. And then the weirdest twist of this whole thing, the fifth story or the fourth story is once again a graphic novel called Return to Perdition. Nice. Uh, 
I kind of remember when that came out. I think it's hilarious that one of the sequels is called Road to Purgatory because a lot of the blame on why this movie wasn't more popular and financially successful was at the time people were saying, what the hell is perdition? No one knows what that is. Call it the road to hell. <laughs> Call it the road to purgatory. Uh, th- this was actually in the conversation. I-, I remember David Letterman was giving Tom Hanks hell about it. It's like, perdition? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about, Hanks? And uh, yeah, th- there was, I think it was very close to being changed at the last minute because uh, people were uh, scratching their heads at it. If I went to see a movie called Road to Hell and the movie I got was <laughs> Road to Perdition, I'd be pissed, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Perdition makes it like, this is a thoughtful, smart person movie. Maybe there's gangsters <laughs> in it, but it's for smarties. Road to Hell is like a gritty grindhouse. And I would have been mad to have received the film Road to Perdition, yeah. <laughs> personally. Yeah. Chuck Norris is in it, yeah. Yeah, Tom Hanks takes to the road with a machine gun. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> and then the movie I get is like an elegy of sadness. And I'd be like, oh, no. So Sounds like something Tom Hanks <laughs> might make now with his, uh, I don't know what his agent is doing. Annie, being someone who hasn't read too many novelizations, mm-hmm. how do you feel starting this book off? It, it has this very, not strange, but bold framing device where like, the movie at the beginning and the end has the the sun going, I'm remembering back, mm. and every single chapter does it here. Mm. How did you feel about, I guess, this book in general and um, <clears throat> revisiting this, like, when you first when you first started it out? Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't really know any of the backstory, and I think probably a couple of chapters in, I was just like, oh, man, this is, like, shockingly well-written. Um... <laughs> I was like, um, have I got the right book? Um, <laughs> and so then I went on to, I, yeah, I was just reading it on Kindle. So I didn't like have the, the you know, paper quality issue or what, what have you. Um, and then I went back to the uh, Amazon like description and I saw that it was like written by the same guy who had written the graphic novel, which the film was based on. And that kind of was a bit like, oh, so he really knows these characters and um and is and and I guess is able to do these slightly kind of fruity little framing devices and and things like that because it's it's his baby as opposed to I guess as you say kind of a, a gun for hire situation. Um but yeah, that is so like cold that they wouldn't let him add stuff in to the novelization. I didn't realise that was what the expanded edition meant. Um in this case it's especially fascinating because we have covered an expanded edition which was referred to as an ultimate edition before and it was a book that was really the opposite where they were like take all this stuff out and Mm. then he put it back in for the ultimate and it was terrible yeah the case where the editors really were doing you a favor uh halloween four johnny oh yeah Yeah, that was a book that needed a strong editorial hand (laughs) so this book starts out i just want to read a little bit of um the loony stuff so first of all the names we didn't even talk about the names Mm. yes i was going to mention that like we should clarify that we're not just all like what two of us aren't getting it wrong uh yes the, the original name in the graphic novel is loony and i'm guessing in uh yeah like i guess it he was able to change it back for this right Looney and O. Sullivan. Yes. As opposed to Sullivan. So in the film, it's Sullivan and Rooney? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think Lou Me, right? With Lumi. an M. Oh, right. In the movie, it it's Rooney? Rooney. Rooney. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah. Because I was going to say Rooney is like at least also an Irish name. That was factually incorrect. So that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um. Certainly somebody at the studio was like, if you call this character Looney and he is a criminal and his son is a cuckoo, that's too on the <laughs> nose. You, ha- you can't do yeah. it. <laughs> Hannah, that's what I was about to say is I, in them putting Looney in the book, there's a line in this book somewhere where he's like, that loon loony like it, they the, it really is in the same sentence at one point it's like okay well we get maybe it. take the one studio note <laughs> are there in the film are both the father and son called michael because that felt to me like something if my friend had showed me their novel i was like you've got to give father and son different <laughs> different first names do you know yes. that this is way too confusing and I think it's less distracting in the movie because it's like, oh, he's he's the firstborn. He uh, has his father's namesake. He's why it's partially a disappointment or he doesn't identify with him. Uh, but yes, when you are reading it in print, it is a little more distracting. Like yeah. Michael, 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 Michael. Yeah. Michael. The movie is also better about calling the dad Mike. Everybody who talks to him says, oh, Mike Sullivan. Mm. Hey, Mike, what's up, Mike? And then the little boy is Michael. So that's like another sort of gap that the book yeah. does way less of. <laughs> like I could use. Yeah. I, I think it also causes you to think about like the people that I love most in life that I'm closest to probably say my name, probably call me Andrew the least mm-hmm. because we're like around each other and I know they're indicating me, you know, whereas if I'm in a classroom or something like that, people have to be like, Andrew, blah, 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 blah. Uh, in a movie, it's so obvious who's talking to who at any given point. And yeah. in a book, it's always like, Michael, he said to the son. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely quite a bit of that type of writing awkwardness in this book. Like, I do think it's pretty well written, but every once in a while, I'll be like, you are working hard, dude. Mm, yeah. I don't think that this is this book is like the most well-written thing we've ever come across, but I I did find it very exciting. And I did find that it sort of enumerated on what the movie was presenting in a satisfying way. So, first page of the book. We're off to the races, and we get the sort of thing where, like, Michael the son is like, my you know, my father was known as the Angel of Death because he, you know, was this hitman for the mob, and, and you've probably heard about him. One of the things I really like about this book is that the son, who's talking to us from the future, is basically like... People are obsessed with my life. There's essentially documentaries out about me. It's super annoying. But I was surprised how early they gave us loony backstory. So it says, um, The Irish loonies had an unlikely but nonetheless abiding affiliation with the powerful Italian-Sicilian Capone gang in Chicago. John Looney himself was a self-trained lawyer and considered by most mix in the cities to be a benign presence, a a benevolent despot, He and his son, Connor, a glorified chauffeur for his father, and widely considered a pale, rather unstable shadow of the old man, had the politicians and police in their pocket. John Looney controlled everything in the cities, brothels, bootlegging, gambling, but the most outrageous of Looney's enterprises undoubtedly was his newspaper, the Rock Island News, which boasted of being the area's only publication brave enough to print all the facts. In reality, the news was strictly a shakedown operation. Headlines would scream scandal at the rare politician who wouldn't play ball, Mayor Shriver in sanitarium for syphilis treatment, 
and typical front pages would announce acts of shame dishonor prominent citizens and elected officials and local banker seen with prostitute. In some cases, these were adversaries and even enemies Lumi was settling scores with. But mostly, such tactics were bald-faced blackmail. All of this is true, by the way. This part. Which is that the guy that Looney was based off of did essentially run a newspaper that was just for slam pieces. Mm. Those were the days. But I like, it also gives us this interesting perspective uh, because our our protagonist, our, our audience avatar character is Michael the Sun. And it's really clarified that the reason we always see him out on his bike is because he's delivering newspapers. Mm. And so seeing these newspapers every day is giving him this glimpse into the operation of Looney that his parents are sort of trying to keep him from seeing, which at least as a plot contrivance is clever. It doesn't really seem to be engaging with the newspapers though. Like it takes hmm. the clear fact of seeing a man murdered in front of him on Looney's go ahead, basically, <laughs> that turns Michael against him. Like up until that point, he's like, that's my grandpa and I love him and he's great. And what he does is good. And his mom's like, he's right. not that good. Please stop. And he's like, no, mom, she's great. He's great. Like, I don't think he's, <laughs> it's like he's reading the paper and like having critical thoughts, you know? Sure. Uh, I don't know if I have it on hand, but I, I got the impression that he was like uh, seeing things and being like, oh, that seems a little out of step with reality. Looney seemed, I, I mean, so much of what his, uh, how he's looked at in the film, and I think how Newman plays him, is this level-headed businessman who, as a last resort, will, uh, you know, you know, uh, use a little violence here and there and intimidation. Uh, but then his little, you know, underlings just they can't shoot people fast enough it's like you know uh, kieran hines uh, uh you know gets a little drunk at his brother's funeral and like the instant solution for connor is like well i guess we gotta kill him you don't have a guy on your payroll called the angel of death if you aren't killing people left right and center that's true that's true <laughs> like, you I, just it, don't so that's not the uh, name he earned in the war i always thought maybe is that is that re referenced in the the novel? I can't remember now. I think they do. Yeah, they again a bit like um in this framing device that Andrew's talking about, where they'll sort of do this kind of funny step into the future, and it's like some scholars say this, and mm -hmm. and some journalists have said that, and they sort of intimate it's possible he got the nickname during the war, or it's possible that he got it because he did so much killing for Looney. Yeah, I'm trying to find that. It's one of the intros to the chapters. He talks a lot about his dad getting the um, the nickname. I thought it was strange that the guy was called the Angel of Death and people were out there just being like, hey, Angel. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that because I, I guess I like thought of the, like, that country song, right? The like, just call me Angel. <laughs> oh, sure, know. yeah. <laughs> In the morning. Yeah, like, yeah, no, it kind of gave me like a different a different tone. It also feels like if your like street name is Angel of Death, it's almost like a derogatory nickname, right? Like, I think it's something that people would definitely say behind your back, right? Exactly. And you wouldn't just be like, "Hey, what's up, Angel?" Like, yeah. Uh, and it seems like Michael O'Sullivan is a guy who's like, "I don't like that. That's not who I am. Yeah. I happen to be a professional murderer, but I'm a good guy. I promise." Like, would not be proud of being an Angel of Death and accept it as a <laughs> moniker. I thought it was interesting that they put such a fine point on the community's feelings about Michael in this book. 
where at the wake at the beginning he's legitimately uh the annie the 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 wife is legitimately approached by someone who's like your your husband killed that guy that's pretty Mm. fucked up pretty amazing that you showed up it's like really bad husband behavior like i do have to say if i were in in the wife's shoes in annie's shoes i would have been so mad if my husband like made me come along to this wake and didn't just like give me a heads up that he had killed the guy (laughs) like I don't know you know I, i've never i've never been in, in the mafia or organized crime but like i do st- i just feel like there is an etiquette around those things and just a heads up would be nice yeah she knows not to ask questions but you know they, they, they should have a, a winking system at some yeah point as a mob like, wife uh, i think i would insist on knowing everything like if you're gonna do this insanely dangerous job and put me and my children also in an insanely dangerous position, you better tell me what you're fucking doing. Bring me in on mm. it so I can, like, know. <laughs> yeah. Give me the gossip. <laughs> but then again, if you have information about... You, look, if people are going to torture me for information, they're going to do it whether I know the information or not. Mm. I might as well know it. <laughs> I think I think it only works as a preventative measure, right? It's like if you've demonstrably not known information before, you might not get kidnapped and tortured in the future. And yet she gets shot to death in the bathroom. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. The uh, <clears throat> the passage here is that uh, she's talking to Mrs. Begley and says, The heavyset woman raised a gesturing finger. The volume of her brogue-inflected voice heightened a notch. And I want you to know, Annie O'Sullivan, I myself have said uh, said to more than one person, I think it's a brave and honorable thing, you coming to pay your respects like this. Annie frowned. What do you mean? Well, dear, frankly, Danny McGovern's wake, even I didn't think you'd have the nerve to show your face. And Mrs. Begley's smile froze into something that wasn't a smile at all. Then the woman rose and left Annie alone again. Confused yet embarrassed, Annie got up and left the kitchen, aware suddenly that this wake had implications that went beyond what little her husband had told her. Something's breaking down here, and it might not be on the marriage side. If you're all married to mob guys... It feels like multiple people, like Kieran Hines' character and this woman, are subscribed to this system that is like, we do fucked up stuff and it's secretive and blah, 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 blah. And yet they're having like these big emotional breakdowns. I understand why that would happen due to human nature. It just feels like almost every page of this book and almost every scene of the movie is basically saying like, how do mobs even work? This thing is just falling apart. (laughs) Well, this is kind of like we're at the the end of the great height of mob activity, right? Like Capone's going to go to jail within a couple of years and that's it. The like golden age of organized crime is on its way out. Mhm. So it's crumbling. Mm. It just it I it's very apparent. I I like it about the movie. I like that the movie basically is like oh something small goes wrong at the beginning mm. and then the ramifications of it just snowball because once you can't trust one another, then it's only escalation, escalation. Yeah, it kind of just becomes this sort of cascade of violence. And I guess, you know, that is kind of how organized crime works. It works when you kind of have the gang and the violence is sort of being meted out to people outside the gang. Um, mm-hmm. But like it yeah as you say kind of it it just takes like one act of violence for a kind of trust breakdown to occur um and then from that just kind of spirals into further 
in inter intra gang violence i don't know um like the intranet i get it yeah yeah um and that's kind of just like a that's a total collapse right so i guess like what road to perdition is kind of documenting is that kind of collapse and it is partially that collapse that makes the their organization feel a little more small scale like it is odd Mm. that they are sort of seen as existing alongside capone and uh, all the chicago operation because it's like ah you do not have your shit together in the way that they do you know they they're really running a tight ship here and you know the the bodies are falling to the the ground but they're they're still uh moving forward and you know it's like you kill one mother and a kid in the bathtub and and, uh, and the whole thing collapses for them. I think the reason that this is happening, that this is like a, an event different from others, right? Because surely these mob guys are in little tiffs all the time with outside forces. I think the real issue is that the villain of this piece, the Daniel Craig character, is <clears throat> betraying like the organization itself. And Hannah, you scoffed at the way I had written the intro. But this is a story about how the solution to their problem is so simple, and yet Looney just won't turn against his own son. He just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think my scoff was this question of, like, morality. Like, you use the word morality, and I'm like, that's never anybody's consideration of, like, what's right. It's really, like, what's business and what's personal. Sure. Definitely. I mean, uh, Looney definitely places personal over business and morality. The only reason that I'm saying morality is because so much lip service is paid to it in the Nitty scene, where Nitty's like, I know, it's really fucked up what's happening to you. I know, it's bad. You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I don't know if that's more, this is a, we're having so many, Andrew, language conversations about like what a words mean. I don't think that's uh-huh. morality. I think that's justice. Mm. He's like, I get it. It's mm. not fair. It doesn't feel right. Justice-wise, you want justice, you want vengeance. I can't give it to you. You just have to accept that that's how the world is. And Sullivan's like, absolutely not. I will kill that man. (laughs) (laughs) The smart thing to do, the like moral thing to do is to let it go and move back to Ireland, right? Take Take your son, take the money, go start a new, better life. But he's too caught up in this idea of vengeance and like an eye for an eye that he won't do it. One of the things that I don't like about the Tom Hanks casting in this movie, much was made at the time of, oh, he's taking a villain turn, he's blah, 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 it's a darker Hanks than you've ever seen before. And in reality, it's like, they put him in such an evil situation that he's Mm. still able to kind of come out smelling like roses because he's the good guy in hell, right? He teaches his kid to drive. (laughs) This, I, I thought maybe that when we looked at something written by Max Allen Collins, since he's the original author, that maybe it would be more morally gray. But he really underscores in this book from the beginning, I mean, he gives it away that Connor is fucking with everybody. There's this passage on 54 right before McGovern gets killed. And this scene, of course, is in the movie. It's just not expounded upon as much. Uh, It says, McGovern raised a lecturing finger. You tell Father Looney that my brother never stole from him. I've gone over the books with a fine-tooth comb, and Danny never sold no booze to no one. Every single barrel accounted for. On paper, maybe. Danny was not that clever. Not with numbers. Not with nothing. And besides, where's the money if he was selling your father's booze? Suddenly, defensiveness colored Connor's voice. 
How the hell should I know? Check his fucking mattress, why don't you? Perhaps, McGovern said with a nasty smile, you should check yours. Ooh. I think... <laughs> yeah, Johnny's making a, a boom motion with his with his arm. The I think the movie handles this better because obviously Craig's performance is showing that he's a real piece of shit, mm. but they speed over it enough where they're like, okay, uh, where's the money? I don't know where the money is. Boom, boom, boom. I shot you all. And you're like, what happened there? In the book, Collins really goes, this is the villain. This is where the whole book's going. Just yeah. keep an eye out. It, it's hard for me because like, yeah, I think that's right. I think you're, to yes, I think you're right. I think Connor Reads is such a fucking idiot. I can't believe he did it. Like, it's set up properly. It's all laid out. By the time you get to the end, you're like, of course it's Connor. He's the real bad guy here. The rest of them are noble mobsters. But I just, like, don't believe that that dumb fuck who, like, spends the entire story, like, hiding out in a hotel room fucking hookers and taking baths is, like, smart <laughs> enough to be, like, carrying on financial tricks under the names of dead people and doing all this money laundering like that feels so mm. like you get to the point where they explain exactly. that he's money laundering essentially and i was like no if he's stealing <laughs> money like okay if he's killing people who could rat on him sure but i don't buy that he's doing anything that takes more than one step yeah it takes way too much initiative to basically like you know oh i'm gonna steal the business from my dad like stealthily instead of inherit it naturally like i i would do um but, like, yeah, for this guy who, like, the first bit of complication that hits him is like, I, I better go kill this six-year-old kid. <laughs> like, I, I, I have no choice but to cover my tracks this way. I'm such a coward. It's like, yeah, it just doesn't fit. Yeah, mm. yeah I, think it, I think it fits book Connor a little bit better than film Connor, mm -hmm. possibly. Um, because the way that Daniel Craig plays connor in the film i seem to recall is just like such a live wire like mm -hmm. kind of he's so ready to snap um which i think andrew is right it actually kind of distracts from the idea that he is kind of pulling the strings but also because it's kind of unbelievable that a guy so clearly like teetering on the edge of sanity uh could do all of those things whereas i think he's like a little bit more subdued in the book he reads to me like someone who would have a bit more of a kind of, if not like intelligence, the kind of, the kind of low cunning of a bully, you know, mm -hmm. who could mm -hmm. just intimidate just enough people to make sure that they look the other way for crimes like that. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. The, the book is trying to return to whatever Cullen's like original idea of the character is. And I am having trouble shaking Daniel Craig from my head. That's definitely happening. You can just replace him with Michael Shannon. I think that's the first step <laughs> that you need to do in your head. And it, my it my picture is 100% Michael Pitt, who would play it crazier and scarier. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> this guy's not making plans. He's shooting people. <laughs> my beloved Michael Pitt. <laughs> I meant to say earlier on the Michael Shannon beat, that um, <clears throat> I not only love Michael Shannon whenever he, he turns up in anything, I recently had an experience where his absence infuriated me. Oh, where, yeah? so we're, you know, it's at time of recording December 2022. So like everyone's talking about the White Lotus. And mm -hmm. I recently watched the first season and someone had told me and they were wrong that Michael Shannon was in it. No way. So you just kept oh. waiting for him. And so I watched the whole thing, just like which waiting. was fine. 
And I, but the, for like <clears throat> six episodes, I was like, I, I like Steve Zahn, but where the fuck is Michael Shin? <laughs> I had a similar thing, although it, it ha- ended a bit happier than yours with White Lotus season two, where for the first two episodes, they keep on teasing you that Tom Holland's name is in the credits. Yes. And you're like, oh man, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see Tom Hollander. And I'm so excited to see Tom Hollander. Um, and if you're anything like me, you're sitting there going, I know it's not Tom Holland, the actor, <laughs> but is this that one guy or is it the director of Fright Night? I always mix them up. <laughs> it's that one guy. It's beloved Tom Hollander, national star yeah. and treasure. Yeah. And he showed up. Oh, he shows the fuck up in that show. (laughs) He did. Beloved character actor Tom Hollander shows up. (laughs) Shows up in episode three. I'll say I just rewatched HBO's John Adams, where Tom Hollander plays Mm. King George, and I was like, (laughs) "What a treasure! What a treat!" To like have him in one scene of that six, seven episode thing. It perks you up so much when his little face shows on screen. (laughs) So much. Here's. The description of Tom Hanks, also known as Michael O'Sullivan, describing uh, what Connor has been doing, the thing we've been discussing, which is, it says, uh, read all about it, John, O'Sullivan said, as if hawking an extra edition of Looney's paper. Your son has been working for Chicago. When you turn down something as beneath your dignity, narcotics, forcible white slaving, union racketeering, Connor goes right ahead with it, with Capone's blessing. In the movie, there's that scene where Rance is like, hi, do you want to become the most evil man ever, Mr. Looney? And he goes, no, I am happy with my level of evil. And then it never is referenced again. This was really helpfully clarifying for me that that's in there because Connor is meeting up with Rance and going, let's do it. It does, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong here, because I watched this movie like three weeks ago. I think the crime or whatever that connor is doing is different in the book and the movie yes okay yes thank you but hannah it's different in the book and the movie but in the movie they introduce this thing of lunius turning down certain types of crime Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then that that little nugget doesn't go anywhere whereas the book is like that's connor's whole deal it's Mm -hmm. just enough in the movie that you're like well you can see why eventually the capone syndicate would be like this guy's not worth it We're really sticking by him, but he's not supporting our interests. He's not doing union stuff. He's not, you know, fucking with the Teamsters, which is what we need, or whatever. Like, eventually, when Mike becomes so much of a problem, they're like, throw him out. Throw him out. Not worth it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's kind of a brilliant plan, the idea where he's like... As opposed to making anything right or seeking the revenge I want, I'm just going to make Connor annoying for everyone. They won't give him up just because. So I have to make it worth it for them to give him up so I can murder him in cold blood. (laughs) I wonder if any of the sequels just follow the Stanley Tucci character, because I'd read the shit out of those. (laughs) I just don't. I mean, we're skipping so far ahead, I guess, but I don't know what a sequel could be. Especially because this book so clearly says that little Michael grows up to be a priest and is like a good guy who has yeah. no more adventures. <laughs> like, I just don't understand. Not an ass-kicking priest, yeah. I, I'm who just, so who curious. Who does Tucci play in the, in the movie? I can't remember that one. Nitty. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, one of those 
one of those real life guys who pops up. It's always funny when that happens in a mob movie and you're like, well, that guy's getting out alive. (laughs) (laughs) So is the reason that we're kind of not talking about the plot so much other than the, you know, really we're we're focusing on the setup and the intricacies of that. Uh, Is it because the story of this isn't all that interesting? Does anyone else feel that way? Yes. yeah, I, I once they're on the road, like you know, it's supposed to be like, oh, here we go. Yeah, the the uh, the the titular road to perdition, and it's kind of a boring journey. It's it feels like they should be, um, yeah, I, I don't know. There, there there should be more of a chase to it or something, but it's very low stakes. It feels even though you know they never actually have tail. to rob a bank is the problem. Yeah. I think they walk into oh, every that's... bank. And the bank guys just hand over the money without any fight. They never have to fire a gun or be or flee from a bank. Mm -hmm. Bummer. And they aren't constantly being harassed by Jude Law. They run into him twice. It's bad. Then he disappears. And when he shows back up at the end, you're like, oh, fuck that guy. Oh, that guy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it, it neither has, as Johnny was saying, like a chase or any sort of of the fun, like bank robber road bonnie and clyde stuff that i guess i kind of had hoped for and it's one of the reasons at at least at first for the first half and uh, maybe you know more patience than i had uh, for the movie I-, I actually thought that the novelization was pretty good like it it did yeah. improve upon in some ways and uh taking more from the graphic novel and restoring more uh and I thought that the characters worked a little better in print than they do when you are watching these, like, mm-hmm. you know, live flesh bags uh, interacting with one another, which in in ways that don't always <laughs> feel credible. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually think it's a, a decent novel. And, and I was also amazed while reading it because I hadn't seen the movie pretty much since it came out that... I it was just all flooding back to me. It was every every line I read was just like, oh gosh, I can picture this in my head right now as this movie that I haven't seen in so long. Uh, to the point that when we get to Capone, I'm thinking, who played Capone in the movie? And I go to IMDb, and I'm like, I, I you know, I, th- I thought I remembered, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I I don't know. What what does anyone else think about like the prose of the novel versus the live action of the movie i'm here to say i think the prose is okay at best i think he does a lot of like oh the rain poured down like sheets of what like it's just really sort of trite to me in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and he's he's like aiming for artistry that i don't think he's pulling off he also in the like structure italics bits says the same shit over and over again to the point where i was like i've heard this already and it's annoying yeah. that it's here again. Didn't you read right. your own book over once and yeah. realize like you've already said this information? So I was not amazed by the writing of this book, though I think it's fine. The movie has enough striking images that even if I don't like the casting and I think it's not a super successful film, there were shots and camera motions and shit where I was like, wow, that's very handsome. That's really quite cool. You don't see that very often in movies, and it made it worthwhile to watch the movie in a way where, like, the story isn't good enough and the writing isn't good enough for me to be like, this book rocks, you know, like, it's this is the version for me. That's my stance. Now, Andrew, you earlier said, like, oh, the, hearken back to a time when Sam Mendes was a good director. I would posit that Sam Mendes gets the job done, but... Here's what he's got. He's got a graphic novel that is basically storyboarding the film, and he's got Conrad P. Hall as shooting it. 
And at that point, who cares who the director is? You don't need a director. If you have Conrad Hall shooting his final film, I believe, he was uh, he won a posthumous Oscar for this. Uh, like, that is why this film is so memorable. Because you, you just get that scene with Paul Newman in the rain, and the, the, the drops are just rolling down his cheek and off his, the brim of his hat. And it's it almost doesn't matter who directed this thing, because you're, you're just looking at these gorgeous tableaus and uh it's it's one of the reasons i think maybe we give sam mendes a little too much credit because even when he has a good movie i think you can point to the other person who got the job done these days it's roger deakins i was gonna say for skyfall you're saying it's deakins for skyfall and you know 1917 too which still didn't get the job done for me but it's the only interesting thing about it i think the boys uh, though yeah the boys are cute. The boys are good. Uh, yeah, story-wise, just doesn't do much for me. And and Roger Deakins makes his new movie look good, but uh, oh gosh, it can't save it. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let's let's. Uh, okay, I'll do a, a, an attack on Mendez, <laughs> Johnny. There's just no way that you can accuse me of being too generous to Mendez. I basically oh, no. hate him. Oh, um, maybe I think, more so like, than me. I think I like this movie. And I think you're probably right. I, I'm 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 damning it with faint praise by saying like, this is a Sam Mendes movie I think is actually good and like a movie and enjoyable to watch. I am. There's little gripes I have with his other films, 1917. Uh, not people don't focus on this enough. I feel like, yes, it's got the gimmick of the one shot thing, which it doesn't even go through with because it has a character blackout, which is annoying, and then. <laughs> But it also has the, it, it's like a video game movie in addition to that. Not only is it doing the, like, Call of Duty perspective, it has those weird things where it's like, early in the movie, it's like, I've acquired milk. And then late in the movie, it's like, this NPC needs, needs milk. milk. Wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a weird movie. My thing with Mendez is that I have such dislike for American beauty, I can barely contain it. I think it's because American Beauty comes out in what, like 99, 2000? 2000. It's pre-9-11, I'm positive. Yes, yeah, it might be 99. Feels like 99. It is is a time when I am a child and I'm like, I would like to get into headier movies. What won Best Picture? Okay, let me check this out. And I think it has informed a lot of my film criticism throughout life, like how much I disliked the movie. Uh... First of all, because it begins with her saying, would you kill my dad as like a, a as a way to grab the audience? And then later on, we get to the scene and she goes, Haha, just kidding, <laughs> which I think about all the time. It's like one of the worst things I've ever seen in a film. And then uh, the there's the, the movies like built on these like sitcom misunderstandings of, oh, it looked like. The one character was fellating the other character, but it was because of window placement. Like, it's really... that That is a, an upsetting film that I think is, is sort of insulting to the audience's intelligence. This movie, like you said, at least looks pretty, and I like, even though I hear you, Hannah, about it being an anticlimactic film. I like that it's a movie about how crime doesn't pay that has what I think is a really exciting first act... And then the rest of the movie is like a depressing series of executions where it's like, hey, being in this life actually wouldn't be that thrilling. It would mostly be sad. Maybe he should be executing all of the bank guys. I don't know. Maybe he should genuinely be digging himself the deepest grave to hell. Yeah. 
that a man could be in instead of being like yeah. i don't want to hurt anybody i'm a nice pr-. like let him be the worst guy let revenge <laughs> eat his soul so much that by the end his son is like actually if my father had continued to raise me i would be a monster i would be connor looney like it just doesn't mm. because he like won't commit to making the elder mike sullivan a bad person it just doesn't work for me we shouldn't feel sad that he is shot at the end. It's like, oh, you know, Michael Jr., you're finally free. And uh, and, and it's not because, you know, he's he's been so nice for the last hour. Uh, you know, we, all is forgiven for uh, the first hour and Michael Jr.'s whole life leading up to that. Uh, yeah. It just, and, and, you know, you could, uh, I think, again, a lot of the criticism at the time of this came, the, that this came out was that, yeah, Hanks doesn't pull it off. People couldn't accept him in this role. And it's not because, like, Tom Hanks is too nice to play this. It's also because I think it's a bad performance. Like, I, I just think that he doesn't get it. And and it's, it's not terribly well-written, too. Like, yeah, I don't know if uh, Michael Shannon in this role still works unless he really you know the, the the script has to commit him to that darkness more than uh than than his performance does michael I'd shannon rather... wasn't even on the map at this point no of right? course not this like he's like not a, a realistic <laughs> casting choice for the time this movie came out but like if you have the dream it's just it's just head casting yeah yeah, yeah. i just feel like yeah. michael shannon has in him a clear capacity for murder in a way that mm-hmm. tom hanks doesn't so like at any moment watching any scene with him you're like he might just kill this guy like, he might just be a guy who's going to snap and kill this guy because he's annoying. In a way that Tom Hanks is like, oh, if I murder someone, my whole life will be over and ruined. I'm like, that's your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you that you're sad that you have to kill people. Like, your fucking job. Maybe I'm being too hard on Tom Hanks. Something I like about the beginning of the movie and the book, and I want to go to bat for the prose. I hear what you're saying, Hannah. It's not the best written book we've ever read, but... For it being like a a mob drama, I think Collins does a really good job with it, where like the action is exciting to me, and he is hitting the sadness uh, a lot. And while I agree that the intros to the chapters are repetitive, they are really about like, I have spent my whole life thinking about what was lost on this journey, thinking about how I've turned out as a person. I think they do ultimately add to... Uh, the sense of of loss and, and of melancholy, but maybe we could have just had three of them in the book as opposed to the beginning of every single yeah. chapter. Mm, I think I'm being extra hard because I think this book lost me pretty early and then I hmm. it didn't really win me back. So by the time I got to the end, I was like, this is annoying. Where like you liked it and it caught you and it wrapped you up. And so you got to the end, you're like, that all worked and was good. It was all on par with the thing that I liked to start with. And I mm-hmm. d- uh, didn't like it to start with, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I've definitely felt uh, wrapped up in it while I was reading it. It helped, I think, that it was a while since I'd seen the movie, and therefore I did genuinely have a like kind of sense of like, oh yeah, what happens next? Like, what what happens after this? Um, also, I I had COVID while I was reading it, so I had literally nowhere else to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very oh, much I, like I the definition of captive audience. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, real real captive audience sort of thing, where it's just like, well, what am I going to do? Go outside? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, you know, it was, yeah, definitely compared to, I think, some of the other novelizations I've read for this podcast, it felt very competent. I don't know if I would like 
yeah say it was like a, a brilliant book but it felt enjoyable and like cleverly written enough to to keep me interested I think the first act of it, especially, I, I it lost you, Hannah, but I just don't get it. I thought it was so fun. I love both book and movie, the way it sort of twists and turns, and you don't know exactly who the antagonist is. So my example here is, like, he goes to kill the one guy, right, who he hands the letter to, and the letter says, you know, kill O'Sullivan, and all mm. sins are forgiven. And... That's a moment, especially in the movie, but also in the book, where the guy he's giving it to is such a silly buffoon that it's like, what is going on here? Like, why why would they have this guy kill him? That seems so unbelievably sloppy. And there's also a moment when, in both the movie and the book, where O'Sullivan shows up and the intended target, who's actually the intended assassin is like, am I behind? I guess I'm behind. And when I watch the movie, I read that as like, okay, well, he's he is behind. He's just like not keeping track of anything. It's satisfying to me that they set up that sort of weird dynamic and then they reveal it's Connor who's behind this and he's shitty at subterfuge. <laughs> he picked a bad assassin and that's also like why that guy, when they show up, is like, I don't think I'm behind. Is that the case? It's it's good. That that sort of thing. At that point in the book, I was like, this is really Can you clarify exciting. What part you're talking about with that for me? Yeah, sure. At the beginning, uh-huh. uh, ish after after the inciting incident has happened, after the murder, um, yeah. When when Looney try not Looney when Connor Looney tries to kill uh, O'Sullivan, he sends him to collect on a debt. Yeah, I remember that. That doesn't exist. That's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, I think the debt definitely exists. I think the debt exists, Connor's yeah. just using this opportunity to hopefully get Sullivan out of the way. It's like a the, two birds, yeah, one the, stone. The note says to him, like, kill, Sol- kill O'Sullivan and the, your debt is erased. Type. Thing, I understand. It? I've, yeah. I'm digging in. I don't oh, believe okay. the debt exists. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so you're just wrong. You're but, just committing to a wrong why would he kill? <laughs> why would he kill him then? If he, well, because I think he's But so... I don't know any money. No, I, I think I think this makes sense. I think that this guy is, in general, so behind on stuff and whatnot, and so used to needing to pay up. And I think Connor is so used to having to collect in that way that he's like, I'll send him to this guy. That's believable. And I think that man would also be motivated to have an IOU from the mob. Doesn't Looney Senior, Looney Senior is the one who sends him to the guy who's in debt. Connor's only addition to the task is handing him the bit of paper. So I think the debt is genuine because at that point, John Looney is not in on the plot. Yeah. Um, And that is kind of one thing that I did find a little bit frustrating, I guess, which is they kind of do this thing where they're like, oh, is John Looney in on it? Like, did he send... Mm-hmm. Uh, Sullivan, did he send O'Sullivan to there to get killed? And that's like genuinely a bit of drama where you're like, wow, what if like Looney Senior just really is this like absolutely cold bastard who is like willing to to kill this man who he th- you know treats like a son? It's maybe a but mistake then, of oh so so sorry. Oh, so I was just going to say, but then they kind of they they do a reveal 
which is, I guess, a story that is an anecdote that is recounted later on to uh, Michael O'Sullivan Jr., which is the story of uh, Looney Sr. finding out, essentially, that this kind of mass assassination has gone ahead and freaking out at Connor. So that mm-hmm. kind of like little bit of drama or a little bit of intrigue, I guess, gets taken away from you, the reader. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe it's a mistake in the film that we don't see Looney, John Looney, uh, have that, really have that transitional moment other than him hugging Connor like, crap, he's my blood son. I mm. I have to side with him even over the guy I prefer, yeah. who I wish were my son. And so at a certain point, you know, Looney is all in on like, yeah, we have to kill Michael, my the, the one I love. Mm. Uh, and we don't see why or or how hard that decision is for him it's it's maybe the only decision for him but we don't see him struggle with it so much and i think that's because paul newman like they only had him for so many days maybe uh it you know he he, uh he showed up to said he did as much as he could but yeah he wasn't gonna give him anything extra but hey paul newman's sleep walking through a roll is still better than most anyone else doing it (laughs) all right so the dead exists all right (laughs) okay no I, i i like your reading all the same you can edit that out, Andrew. <laughs> I usually edit uh, anything where I'm proven wrong out. <laughs> That's why all episodes are four hours to record and 45 minutes in one. <laughs> um, total non sequitur. I found the thing where we talk about why he's called the Angel of Death. Uh, and it's very quickly followed by uh, the scene... Well, I'll talk about that in a second. Okay, so the Angel of Death thing, it's in one of these italics intros to the chapters, which is Michael Jr. looking back on his life and and whatnot. It says, According to one writer, John Looney stood before my father in the study of the mansion on the bluff, in the study of the mansion, yeah, and raised a hand as if in benediction, saying, In the Great War, you made me proud. Now you will be my soldier of soldiers. But I will never ask you to employ your terrible talents upon the innocent, only the disloyal, or other soldiers, soldiers of my enemies, who will be visited by my Michael, my arch, my archangel of death. Archangel? Archangel. Uh, this may have been spun out of a melodramatic whole cloth, but my research indicates some underlying truth anyway. Certainly my father's reputation ex- extended beyond the Tri-Cities. This substantiates the claim that Papa was often loaned out by Looney to affiliated gangs around the country including that of Al Capone and his associate, Frank Nitti. I already said it, but I like that he's like, I'm also trying to piece this together. I didn't mm-hmm. know the guy that well. Mm-hmm. Um, one mark of a great novelization for me is that I can read a scene in a book and be like, was this in the movie? Because mm-hmm. it feels real enough that I actually am remembering it, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't. And for yeah. me, that's the scene the extended scene in the book of him arguing with Tom Hanks and jumping out of the car where his dad's like, what you did was wrong. And he's like, what I did was wrong. And he goes and runs off and gets tackled in the snow. That felt so true to those characters that I remembered it, even though it's not a scene. It's not. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remembered it too. I think I did as well. Yeah. This book is very clear on action. Like, you say the action is good. The action is good. You always know what's happening. It's very visual. You can always, like, picture the scene. Like, the big shootout in the hotel where, like, there's glass flying and the ticker tape is going. Mm -hmm. Like, all of that is 
so clearly written that you can't imagine it if you haven't seen it before, which I was able to having not seen the movie. That's yeah. good writing. Like, I'm willing to give him credit for that. For sure. The movie is also really sleek. Like, this is a, uh, I, I think it's like 150 minutes uh, before the credits. And uh, that doesn't happen with a uh, very serious uh, crime drama anymore. You're, you're, you're usually looking at like, you know, two and a quarter hours, two and a half hours. And yeah, it does feel like there's something missing, like a bunch of scenes, maybe a Capone encounter here and there. Uh, so, you know, there, there's not a lot of fat on this movie, even though I think that the story feels like fat sometimes it, it doesn't amount to much but at least it's moving at most of the time but johnny this movie can't handle 20 more minutes of oh oh i agree character moments no 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 i i, I mean it's I think slow, mercifully maybe. we don't have to deal with it <laughs> it's a very stately handsome slow movie yeah yeah i mean i like like i said i like that the end is not some big satisfying conclusion that it really like underlines how empty the experience was for all of them. When I talk about the action though, I I get what you're saying. Like you're saying the action of the book, what everyone is doing in any given moment is very clear and, and easy to picture. But sometimes when I say action, I really mean like the action sequences are really well written. Like the part yeah, where they actually kill McGovern's guys. That. Oh great, we're agreeing. The part where <laughs> they actually kill for McGovern's once. guys is on page 55, it says, Connor's hand flew from his pocket, and the pistol in his fist bucked twice, putting two bullets into McGovern, one in the chest, another the head. Stunned, surprised at his, at his own death, but without time to come to terms with it, the big man, a red kiss on his forehead, and another blossom of red on his chest, flopped face first on the cement floor. That shot in the movie is so crucial, that slow-mo shot of McGovern dying, and there's no way to recreate that in text. I think that what uh, MAC does here is really cool. It's like he's not going way over the top with the language, but he makes it uh, seem traumatic and scary. I feel, Andrew, perhaps you have not read enough hard-boiled novels mm. or like pulp noirs. Because a mm. lot of that language feels so borrowed out of that sort of like late 30s early 40s almost staccato sort of like the bullet went into the man with like these little artistic touches that make it you know the kiss of the bullet or whatever like that that is mm -hmm. you know hammett almost <laughs> and so i'm not impressed with it when i read it as an ape like this is aping that to mix sure. success and i'm not super impressed with it i you are and that's great i'm so glad it worked for you <laughs> it might be because we're coming from different literary backgrounds it could be but i i want to clarify i'm not saying that i think it's particularly clever brilliant like groundbreaking i just think that that description of action in how understated it is with the little flourishes serves the momentum of this story well mm. i'll allow it <laughs> <laughs> I have a million notes on this just scrolling through i don't but one change <laughs> that i want to highlight between book and movie that i think the book is much is better about when connor kills the wife and other son right mm -hmm. in the book it is in literally in the bathtub 
that boy dies in the tub, right? Then right. at the end, when they kill Connor, he also dies in a tub. It has this beautiful sort of book ending, mm-hmm. this mirror, you know, son for son thing that I was like, that is great. And in the movie, for some reason, maybe because Sam Mendes was like, we can't have a naked child, right? Um, <laughs> the Peter, I guess, does not die like in the tub. And so you lose that sort of like book ending. Like, what is it? Mm-hmm. This like, which I found like really potent to be like, yeah, you've just done exactly what he did to you. You killed him in the tub. You've killed his son in the tub. Um, and it feels like such a shame that I was mm-hmm. really let down to watch the movie and be like, oh, not in the tub. <laughs> and then Daniel Craig is in the tub. Like, then take him out of the tub, but in the bathroom, like make a match. Hannah, it seems to me like you need to be reading more mirrored tub murder books. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, this uh, is quite sod, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry, Andrew. Whatever you're reading in your own life is fine and good. Like I, you, you. Would you believe that what I've been reading in my own life is over 50 novelizations this year alone? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> yes. 20 of those were clueless novelization spinoffs. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that was a dark time. <laughs> Something I really like in uh, Colin's writing on page 37, he's talking about. Michael the Child's love of the big little books, these adventure books. And it says, Most of the big little books, 10 cents each at the dime store, featured comic strip characters like Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie. Michael's favorites, though, were the Western heroes like Tom Mix from the movies and the Lone Ranger from radio. He flew through the thick books, gulping down the words, inhaling the pictures, each of which had a caption. Moonlight streamed into the room. Unless he was in the middle of a sentence, he would always look at the picture first, and then read the caption, and finally the page of text. He flipped a page, revealing a shadowy figure climbing in a window. Quote, a man climbed in the window. This is Collins talking about his love of graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Right? And talking about how the eye processes panels, which I, I thought was cool. Somewhere in one of his notes, I wish I could remember, maybe in the afterword or something, he talks about how in the movie they added, they did Lone Ranger, and he was like, oh, that's really smart. I'm going to use it too, (laughs) that he didn't originally, (laughs) um, which really tickled me to learn. Because like, obviously, the filmmakers were like, nobody knows what the fuck Tom Mix is. Like, that's not known. Lone Ranger is visually identifiable well johnny you're cultured or whatever but like (laughs) (laughs) no yeah i thought that was really nice as well he like was just like it's a little bit anachronistic but it just worked so well like (laughs) and the idea of like what does being a vigilante mean like he sees Mm. his dad as like a hero who uses violence and to dip back into the lone ranger throughout the book and be like maybe wearing a mask and killing people is bad (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I don't find this romantic violence romantic Mm. anymore. It's like a a fun through line in the book. It is a fun through line and and feels very, I don't know, realistic. It feels realistic to how a a child uh, first understands violence, like through the use of fiction and fun and like entertainment. And yeah, that kind of, I guess, loss of innocence uh, that like most people have in like much less traumatic ways obviously but where you kind of realize how violence is actually kind of very frightening and scary and like 
Uh, it might be fun to read on a page, but doesn't like make it uh, heroic. It doesn't mean like that. Yeah, you want to be a gangster, or a, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I think when stuff like that, the dad kills McGovern. I think maybe somewhere in there. It was a part where. Michael is watching and he's like, oh, in the Tom Mix books, he always shoots the gun out of the guy's hand. Maybe my dad will do that because he's like a hero and he just like murders the guy. And Michael's like, oh, God. (laughs) And it's such a a harsh juxtaposition of like the expectation of the fantasy and the like stark reality of his father being like a a killer. Yeah. And when his like dad is like when, yeah, Michael O'Sullivan Sr. is like teaching him to shoot a gun. And at first he's like, should I shoot for the legs? And like, this, and yeah, O'Sullivan, like, uh, yeah, senior is just like, no, go for the head or the, like, or the heart. Like, <laughs> here's, here's uh, the line, maybe my favorite line in the book. It's, uh, the boy thought about that too. He's just been given a gun. Where do I aim? The Lone Ranger shoots the guns out of people's hands. The Lone Ranger isn't real. Shoot at their heads. <laughs> Which seems like bad advice. I think the good advice is shoot at their trunk, shoot at their body. Yeah, I think shoot he does body. like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He says like, if you don't think you can hit the head, then just go for the center of body. Yeah. Not to take anything away from Tyler Hecklin's performance, uh, who I think is fine. You know, clearly was a talented kid who grew up to be uh, talented in other things. Uh, I wonder, especially in, like, re-examining this sort of arc for Michael, uh, if he was maybe a little too old, like, or if the character is a little too old, Mm. it might be more effective if he's more around Peter's age, who really would still have that innocence. Whereas Michael, he's already smoking a pipe, he's, you know, he's... Kids are growing up so fast these days, and that was really true when your dad was a hired assassin, and you probably had a little inkling of it. You're, 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 st- you know, I, I buy that little Peter does has no idea about any of this, but I feel like Michael had a pretty good idea. That's why he's sneaking into cars. He wants to see what Daddy's doing. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the character isn't innocent enough, and maybe if he were a little more innocent and naive, that dynamic would be better. And Michael O'Sullivan's seniors, uh, you know, tenderness would play better if he really has to suddenly be a father. Because I gotta say, young Michael, Michael Jr., is probably about old enough to start going into the family business. And I know dad doesn't want that, but it probably makes sense. I think in the movie, Hecklin is probably 14, playing 12 on a character who in the book is 10. Yeah. So he just like, yeah, I agree, doesn't, he reads as a little too grown up. And especially as the movie goes along and you're like, well, they shot this over enough time that you're like, oh, Hecklin's a little bigger here. He's like, <laughs> not a little boy in this scene. He was definitely older and, and more mature than I remembered him being mm-hmm. in, in my memory. I wonder if it's also like, now that I know what Hecklin looks like as an adult, I just see the grown up in the boy, you know? Well, yeah. it's one of those faces where it is it is just the same face, but adult. Whereas sometimes people grow up and you're like, you look a lot different. True. But like Empire of the Sun with like baby, baby Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. And it's like same face, same acting mannerisms, like same little tics. <laughs> it's like insane to watch that movie. And I kind of felt that with Hecklin, who I really like. But it was just like, I knew him too much as an adult that it was weird. It was like hard for me to see him as a child. But he's so cute. He's got those big bunny teeth. Yeah, <laughs> I get the opposite thing with the Harry Potter actors where they still all look like children. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Especially in that final shot of the final movie when they're all like playing grown up and like, yeah. look, I have a purse. I'm just like a lolly. <laughs> oh, it does. It looks like kids playing dress up. Yeah. yeah. Dark stuff. The, logging on to Audible. And look, I mean, if you're an actor who is in something huge, like get the bag however you can. But like just seeing the the Tom Felton uh memoir where he's like dressed as a wizard as an adult i was like oh no that's a perfectly talented kid too like he should have also popped i mean let's be real like not a lot of them were great and he was actually like one of the stronger ones i thought he's real what what, he's in one of those planet of the apes movies where he's just like a really bad guy (laughs) and i was like this rocks he's like a scummy like animal abuser and i was like yeah man funny (laughs) that is a series where they should be making one of those every year i don't care that war for the planet of the apes like wrapped up plots they should be i so agree yeah more ape human wars every yeah they should do what the original pan of movies did which is like now the apes are doing court trials (laughs) like now (laughs) we're just living in ape society 100% 100% agree. I love the original Planet of the Apes movies. I wish that we were still making, like, yes, I agree. An ape movie every year, but they have to get progressively weirder. They just have to get yeah. so nuts like those originals do. Uh, I'm about four days away from committing to the original Planet of the Apes <laughs> franchise. Oh, I did oh, it last gosh. year. It's awesome. I just like they're not as available as I need them to be for like me, who is like, I'm going to watch a ton of Roddy McDowell movies this year. <laughs> Um, those are the ones that I'm kind of missing. I did them all in one day once at a uh, at, the, <laughs> at the Quad Cinema. Oh. They did an Apes marathon, all five films, and it was glorious. <laughs> although it was an endurance test because <laughs> I'm almost at the end of the third movie, and I'm already pretty tired. And I'm thinking, well, there's just one left, and then I sit for five minutes, and, and then I think, oh wait, no, there's two left. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. But but at the end of that day, I felt fantastic. I was elated. I was one of the only ones left too. Not everyone stayed for all five. <laughs> There is an argument to be made that the Planet of the Apes movies are the original Saw franchise because they end with the first one ends with this crazy twist. Mm -hmm. And then every movie after that, no matter its tone, no matter its content, tries to do a nutso twist that tops it to the point where they kill off so many important characters that they have to start being like the apes went back in time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. This is going to be my between Christmas and New Year's adventure, I think. I think I'll try and squeeze in for all five Planet of the Apes. If everyone is uh, playing along with their authorized bingo card at home, Andrew just mentioned the Saw franchise. So, you know, put, put, put your little bean on that mark. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, a couple things we have to touch on. We talk so much about Maguire. We talk so much about Jude Law at the top of this episode. Is there any good Maguire content in the book? What, as I was going through doing my notes, I, I couldn't think of anything that really popped. Yeah, I really liked his scene with um, O'Sullivan in the diner, where, I don't know, they're kind of having this sort of like staged conversation with one another where, yeah, mm-hmm. like um, Maguire is like trying to, trying to like strike a conversation with O'Sullivan and O'Sullivan is just like instantly like, this guy is too friendly. This is yes. like fucked up. Uh, and yeah, and he kind of, I don't know, I, I really kind of appreciated the sort of like double deception that was going on there where Maguire is just like, 
I'm just an ordinary tourist, not a psychopath, just coming through town. (laughs) What do you do for a living? And then O'Sullivan is kind of like fooling him back where he is like well aware that Maguire knows who he is, but he then starts acting a little bit drunk, a little bit woozy, not really aware of his surroundings. It was just like, I liked that scene. It kind of popped for me. It's a good scene. It I, I don't quite know why it's in the movie. Well, I think the reason it's in the movie is someone realizes, oh, we don't have a scene between our hero and villain until he shoots him at the end. Because it is one of those like, well, this is good. I like this dynamic. But also, I think that uh, Maguire is way smarter than this to like, oh, yeah, I just want to get close to him and, and uh, uh, you know, you play with him a little when, you know, all he needs to do is go to the diner, order a burger and on his way to the gentleman's room, shoot him in the head. Yeah. And uh, yeah. but, you know, it is a fun scene. This is a problem I have with Maguire as a character is he's like the sort of like fun psychopath you put in a movie mm-hmm. who like likes yeah. to play the game or whatever. He likes like play with his food, essentially. To the point where I'm like, this isn't, this is the type of character who doesn't belong in this type of story. He's a little too like goofy, heightened. He's got too many little bits and bobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, That I'm like, I like what Jude's doing. And I like the idea of this guy who's like, then I take pictures of my crime scenes. Like, I like all of that. It just feels like really bizarrely misplaced. And then at the end, he's like, cool. Now my face is fucked up. And I was like, too much. It's a hat on a hat, man. I wish that Jude Law either. Played him more, you know, with more charisma, more, you know, made him a little more handsome. Or if you're going to make him a creep, Dylan Baker was right there on set. <laughs> Cast him as Maguire. I oh, know, it's a that movie, like, right? gooey yeah. little guy. Then you make Jude Law Connor. He can still be there. Everyone's happy. Annie's happy that Jude Law's in the movie. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think maybe it's all better. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely wasn't, like, imagining him all uglied up in, in my head. I'd, like, totally yeah. forgotten they, they did that to him. There's the scene oh. where he's, like, right before the big shootout where he's, like, with a girl across the street, right? And that scene in the book, she's like, boy, most of my Johns are disgusting. And this guy is really great and handsome. And like, (laughs) I'll hang out with him as long as he wants me because this is fun. And like, he's a babe. And I was like, no, you look at Jude Law in that scene in the movie and he's like paunchy and balding and weird and clearly a creep. And I was like, oh, man, we could have had it all. Like, he could have been like a hot killer. Yeah, because I mean, what I also like about in that exact scene where the, yeah, you're kind of like, in the um yeah kind of party girl's head is that she sort of says like he's kind of a bit off though like he's handsome Mm -hmm. but he's a bit off and that was definitely kind of like how i was imagining him because i think that's like that's the peak jude law villain i think he's like a handsome scary guy yeah handsome but a bit off yeah Mm. a bit weird this is why in the holiday where he's a romantic lead, it works because he does that like unbelievable like napkin head thing, which is so fucked up that you're like, oh, there we go. Click. He's a yeah. fucking weirdo. <laughs> Wait, is it like the there will be blood napkin? Thing? I don't. I don't think so. He puts it over his face. Well, he does put it over his face and he puts his glasses <laughs> over the napkin and he like does a character for his kids. And it's oh. so fucking weird. I like one of the most uncomfortable Jude Law line readings where he just says i'm daddy <laughs> yes <as well. laughs> i like oh you know it's like a christmas movie and you watch it a lot around this time of year every single time i'm just like god they couldn't get a better take of this so, he knew like, it was oh. a bizarre thing to say and he yeah. can't do it and it's just like ooh, that little touch of him being like i'm a fucking freak and you're like well i love that 
that's it. That like, makes you better just, for like, me. Does not feel romantic to me. I just like <laughs> do not get a romantic vibe from him one bit. It's always so uncomfortable that it's uncomfortable he was given that face. Like really. <laughs> I am here to defend the Jude Law performance. He's giving a good performance. The no. knock is not on his acting. First of all, it, Hannah was texting me as she was watching the movie being like, it's it's criminal to put this hairline on him. This is this is a crime. And, <laughs> and I, I texted her back and I was like, surely, surely this is a, you know, Mark Ruffalo in one of his getting to the bottom of it movies, like Spotlight or Deep mm. Waters, Dark Waters, whatever, where it's like, He's being so weird because the real guy has that mannerism. And then we realized there's no real guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were just being mean to hot Jude. Speaking of the offness that that Annie that you're bringing up where like he's very attractive, he's very charismatic, but there's something a little not right Mm. about him. Um, which, you know, we brought up Christian Bale earlier. He has that in like every role. We're like, he's a good looking guy, but also keep your distance maybe yeah jake gyllenhaal has it too i think well he has crazy eyes yeah, yeah. so gyllenhaal seems like seems scary even when he's at his most attractive <laughs> yes the the thing i like about this character is that he feels like a real type of person i see in the world i know what you're saying hannah about like his weird hobby and everything it seems like it came from a different genre of movie but this guy that you see on the street where you're like that is like a really naturally attractive man who could really be using that to his advantage if he wasn't obviously going through something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think it is a it's a type of person for sure. In the diner scene, we do I, I looked at it when you brought it up, Annie, because I was like, did I miss something good here? And I, I truly did. Let's see. Uh I like that there that O'Sullivan is pretending to be drunker yeah. than he is, which Hanks doesn't really play in the movie. But they're both kind of trying to be like, look at me, I'm not at my best right now, if you wanted to make a move. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of info about O'Sullivan flirting with the waitress. <laughs> it's kind of deeply sad. Where there's he's... that scene in the, that's only in the book where she's like, do you want to go fuck? And he's like, mm, no. <laughs> Nah. Yeah. Dead wife yeah. stuff. <laughs> he really is. He's like, you know, my wife has not been dead for that long. He, he gives the the real reason. But even in that interaction, I mean, and, and whether this is too morose, you know, you be the judge. But like, even in that interaction, his interiority is, I wonder whether her husband left her or died. <laughs> I wonder with what flavor of sadness I am encountering here. I guess the only other big thing is the Capone scene. What'd you What'd you guys all think of that in, extremely large addition to the story? Um, very unflattering. I didn't care for it that much. Yeah, I don't need it. I don't need it. Yeah, I think the film was right to cut out Capone. Like, it's not really necessary, right? Like, yeah, and it's a scale that the rest of the story isn't really on. Like, you bring in like mm-hmm. the the most famous mobster of all time, and you're like, well. These other guys are kind of like low-grade penny pinchers. They're not really on the Capone. Like, he shouldn't have to be bothered with this. And then exactly, the scene in the book yeah. is like, also, he's a syphilitic fuck-up. And I was like, I don't need that either. They keep, <laughs> they keep mentioning that he has syphilis. It's like, all of the guys around him are just like constantly thinking to themselves, like, he's got syphilis, you know. <laughs> 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 it's, just like, 
<laughs> it just seemed a bit like yeah yeah I, I do know that but like yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know it just felt a bit that's like a mythic figure of American history like I don't need yeah. that I don't need that rubbed in yeah, my face all the time I sort of didn't need this kind of like historical icon like slapped in the middle of the story yeah. yeah, it serves as a distraction. <clears throat> this is probably apparent from context, but for the listener, it's just, Capone just shows up in one of the nitty scenes and is like, uh, hey, are you going to get that O'Sullivan guy? He's taking all my money. And they're like, it's tough. And there's just a lot of Capone, like, mm. they're just telling us he's scary as opposed to showing it, which is not super effective, mm-hmm. where he'll pick up a baseball and a character will be like, that makes me think of when he attacked people with a baseball bat in public and everyone was too afraid to complain it's like, okay, I get it. He's scary. And then it serves one specific plot function where uh, they're talking about Maguire. And it says, well, I have the best man on it. This is Nitty speaking. A real pro. Capone goes, what, Maguire? That screwball photographer? He makes my skin crawl. You're not taking him home to Mother Al. He's a cold-blooded killer and a kind of bloodhound. And that's what it'll take to find O'Sullivan and stop him. Already caught up with him once. It's like... They they basically use Capone to be like, the villain of this book is scary. Al Capone doesn't like him. Yeah, I can't condone that kind of behavior from an author. Like what, you think something <laughs> you're going to create is going to be scarier than Al Capone? I don't think so. Yeah. Like, who do you think you are? It's the equivalent of the Jurassic Park films having uh, whatever the villain dinosaur was from the previous movie get eaten by the bigger dinosaur. <laughs> Does that happen more than once? I I, I think I missed the last few. Is that like a, a, a continuing trope? Like whatever new dinosaur comes in gets eaten in the next one by the, the new one? It happens like, in three, know. but otherwise in, in I actually three, don't think so. Yeah. But I, I agree with Andrew's statement as like a concept. And it's annoying when Jurassic Park did it once. And if they had ever done it again, I would have rioted. Yeah, pretty much everything else I have. Oh, you know what? 217 is an incredible passage. Let me go to that. Hannah, I will, let me know if you think this is heavy handed. I liked it. Okay. Uh, This is after, so climax of the movie. O'Sullivan has killed Looney in the street. Mm -hmm. And then they have him screaming at the apartments. What do you think of this? I think it's more effective in the movie where he just kind of looks around and is like, fuck it, I've been seen and walks away. Yeah. He like looks at all of them and dares them to do something and then leaves. Like for him to be like, let me make a statement in the rain. (laughs) It's like, shut up. I don't know. Yeah, heavy handed. (laughs) <laughs> I like the idea of him yelling at the apartments in the rain, but I don't like the content of what he says, which is very cheesy. <laughs> so it says, uh, he looked up at them, his face moving from blurred face to blurred face, explaining himself. No, warning them of where life could take them. Go back inside, he called, voice echoing like the earlier gunfire, and pray, pray that God never puts you on my road. This guy's obsessed with roads. But the mm-hmm. lights stayed on. The faces continued to watch, to judge. Police would be called, sirens would wail, and Mike O'Sullivan, knowing he hadn't made his point to these witnesses, but confident he'd made an impression on John Looney, walked back into the rainy darkness, which swallowed him, leaving the empty street behind. The almost empty street. I like the line about making an impression on Looney. It's cold-blooded shit. (laughs) It's quite cold-blooded. Yeah, that's true. It's just, like, so cheesy. So cheesy. Like, A, to be like, don't come on my road to perdition. Like, we did. <laughs> I don't mind that the book and movie are called Road to Perdition, but the part of the book where uh, 
Michael Jr. is like, when are we getting to perdition, Dad? And he goes, son, this is perdition. I thought to myself, this would be a helpful time for me to know what the word means. (laughs) 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 Hannah Blackman. Yeah. You are the father of one of the McGovern boys. Oh, brother. Poor me. And... You know, your 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 son is all mobbed up, so it's not a huge concern that some of the mob guys are coming to talk to him in the barn. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're gonna go stand there with guns because that's just sort of like how you do. Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, of course, you uh, are not needed for this for about an hour. Knowing what you know, yeah, would you get a little uh, reading of Road to Perdition, the expanded edition by Max Allen Collins in? No. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, it's fine. It's okay. I, I've read enough mob stuff and watched enough mob stuff that I just wasn't super impressed with this one. And as I said before, I think the movie at least has some cool and handsome visuals that if I'm going to experience this story at all, I think I'd rather watch the movie. But if somebody said, Hey, do you want to watch a mob thing? I'd be like, yeah, let's watch Boardwalk Empire. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, the whole time I was like, I'd rather be watching this starring the cast of Boardwalk Empire or just watching a really good show, Boardwalk Empire, about the same concepts, many of the similar characters. Like, no, yeah. So, no, I, I wouldn't really read this one. I didn't think it was all that. Sorry. Hmm. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, buddy. Annie Kelly. You are... Hmm, let me think about it. You are uh, hosting the wake of your sister? What was the relation of those people? Yeah. Great. Oh, Great, yeah. you're hosting Mrs. the wake lives of your in sister perdition. At, yeah. mm-hmm. at her home. And uh, it, it turns out that your sister had a lot of very strange friends, including uh, one man with a horrible hairline who uh, loves to wear a little... <laughs> hat <laughs> he asks where the restroom is and you let him go use it upstairs the murder you, room he... right well he goes to the murder room but he asks for the restroom yeah which is the murder room do they not oh, have yes, a downstairs bathroom <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry to interrupt but <laughs> yeah, that is that is dire that she's like of course go use it now you discover later that that man uh went into your bedroom and looked around and, in fact, took your copy of Road to Perdition, the expanded edition by Max Allen Collins. Given your relationship to the book, are you sad that it's gone? Um, yeah. I mean, like, particularly since it was on a Kindle. (laughs) That's that's actually, like, you know, that's real theft. That's... um... (laughs) Yeah, that's something I might have to might have to get in touch with my my local non-bent coppers about. <laughs> I guess in general, what did you think of the book? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I really liked the book. Um, yeah, I think like I think it was a fun experience reading it, uh, having uh, some familiarity with the movie, having seen the movie a few times, but not for a long time, because it felt like a nice way to revisit the movie. But also mm. because it's this is the magic of reading fiction, because it's all in your head, you can make some changes. Uh, and I, I liked I liked getting to do that. That was fun. 
like every know, character just... can be Michael Shannon. <laughs> it's Shannon's all the way down. <laughs> Apart from Jude Law, who is still the same. Right, right. Just uh, 12 Shannons and one Jude Law. The <laughs> ideal movie. <laughs> uh, Hannah, save me. Sure. Johnny Pomato, you are the son of a crime lord, and you want to be a crime lord too, but you're not quite up to the task. In order to do a little research to get better at doing crimes, would you read Road to Perdition by Max Allen Collins? I, I was hoping I would be Kevin Chamberlain, the like, oh, can you think Mr. Looney would hire me hitman guy? Oh, or yeah. Or bodyguard guy. Um, I, th- yes, I think I had a similar experience uh, as Annie with this, where I hadn't seen the movie in a long time. So at first, reading it, like, it is so, uh, for the most part, at least in describing uh, the the scenes, it is so closely describing the tableaus that Conrad Hall made that I got excited and convinced myself, oh, I think I liked this movie more than I remember liking it. I was really getting into it. I was excited to revisit the film again, which I planned to do when I finished the novel. Uh, and then uh, I think around the halfway point, it started to lose me a bit. And then when I revisited the film, I realized, like, oh, that's just what the movie does, too. It it just peters out in the second half. Um, so I, I guess it's a fine adaptation of the film. But, uh, and, you know, the added stuff, I guess, is an interesting novelty, but not entirely needed. Although I think it's echoing a lot of the graphic novel, which I did read in advance of seeing the movie in 2002. And I wow. think if you're going to read anything... Read the graphic novel, because you get basically the same story, and you get some of those visuals, and then that might tantalize you a little bit more to watch this movie. I feel like one of those people who's like, oh, I don't like movies before 1980 or whatever, but when I went to skim the graphic novel for this, I was not so happy about the fact that it was in black and white and seemed to be like pretty, you know, I don't know. I was very hoping stylized, that it- yeah. Yeah, I was hoping with with this story and this movie that it'd be like this very, uh, even if the colors were drab, this very mm-hmm. like colorful experience. Mm-hmm. I had the same thought when I got it many years ago. I was like, "Ooh, based on a comic book, is it?" And then I get it. It's, it was one of my probably first like very uh, uh, you know black and white ink and uh, uh, you know black ink uh, graphic novels, and it's like, eh, okay, it's not as visually thrilling as it might have been. Who plays McGovern, by the way? Kieran Hines. Uh, Kieran Hines. Kieran Hines. Yeah. Oh, Irish. Kind of wasted. He is. He's a Northern Irish boy. He actually. Um. He went to school with my dad. Really? That's yeah. Uh, I'm such a fan. I I I uh, when I worked at HBO years ago uh, during the heyday of Rome, I got to meet him at an event, and he was so nice to me. He was just just a a, a gentleman. I met him yeah. at an election night party once at Joe's Pub. Uh, and like was like I'm so, excuse me I'm such a fan I love your work so much and he was so unbelievably nice to me just like okay child thank you very That's nice so Andrew very sweet. what's your Kieran Hines story <laughs> I've, oh, I've not met Kieran Hines but I I'm haunted speaking of there will be blood <laughs> about the fact that he's like just hanging around Daniel Plainview for the first two hours of the movie, and then when the flash forward happens, he's, like, nowhere to be found. <laughs> like, even if he's probably alive, is he doing okay? Yeah. He's just a guy who I like. Every time he shows up in something, I like him. He's a deeply likable guy. 
I love him. Oh, he's the best. Another, another delight to have on screen, just like Tom Hollander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I, too 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 brief in this film. Yeah. Mm. I have one question before Hannah asks me a question, <laughs> yes. which is. What does it mean to write a graphic novel? Like, because the the art for Road to Perdition is done by a different person. What is it? If I'm hired to write a graphic novel, what am I doing? Uh, it, well, you, I, I think usually you are working in tandem with the artist. It's, okay. it's a collaborative effort. Uh, you might, you know, uh, come up with an outline for a story, but yeah, you are you are usually. Uh, uh, working with them in in illust- you know in uh, describing which how the story progresses visually, I would say. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, I have a question for you though. <laughs> I'm ready to hear it. Andrew Overby, you are the waitress at a greasy spoon diner, <laughs> and there's two. I can feel the grief flowing into me. <laughs> and there's two men uh, with hats, and uh, <laughs> and they're talking to each other, and they seem casual enough, but little by little, you get the sense that these two guys, one is definitely going to kill the other. And then someone leans over to you and says, hey, you know, there's a book about these two guys. Do you want to read it? Would you read that book, Waitress Andrew Overby? I, knowing what I know, would uh, would would read this book. I uh, have been pretty open about loving it. I enjoy the movie as sort of like a this this weird mix of like it's snappy, but it's also dour in a way that when I say it out loud, that sounds awful. Um, but I like it actually for some reason. And the book fleshes out little details that you do not need for the most part. But if you already like the movie, it's really interesting to know. So, like, we get little stuff like, oh, when he robs the banks, he's also setting it up in such a way where the bankers he's robbing are getting clandestine payoffs, which is not apparent in the movie. You know, it delves into, as we've said, more things about, like, exactly what Connor is doing and and, and whatnot. And we get these character moments that we don't get in the movie, like, at the end of the book, on, I think, their final drive before... Uh, O'Sullivan is killed, he finally starts bonding with Michael, where they're, like, talking about his, like, struggles at school, and and they sort of speedrun a bunch of bonding that you would hope would happen organically as father and son, but just didn't, because sometimes familial relationships are hard. Uh, I'll shut up in a second, but something I meant to say earlier, the sequence where... Michael Jr. is in the back of the car, he's about to see the murder, and he's watching the bullets roll around in the back seat. I think is particularly great, because it is this breadcrumbs moment where Johnny, as you were saying earlier, he kind of knows that his father has some untoward business. He doesn't want to admit it to himself, and throughout the sequence of him being in the backseat of the car, he's slowly realizing that the situation is more grave than he would hope. He's looking at the canister being like, maybe it's bullets, I don't really know. Oh no, I can see in, it is bullets. I can't pretend it's not bullets anymore. Uh, I think in those small moments, Collins really essentially underscores things that were already there uh, in a way I found really satisfying. So it's a recommend for me. I I like that part of the book too. Hannah, you're going to be made to read... Three sequels you know, to this at some point. I think I would be... Cu- I'm curious to read sequels. I won't be mad to read sequels. I didn't, like, hate this experience. I think I was really hard on it in this conversation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fine. Like, it was fine to read. It was, like, kind of like, you know, yeah. people in my life be like, what are you reading? And I'd be like, oh, the book of Road to Perdition. It's about some mobsters. And then I would tell them about where I was in the story. And they'd be like, oh, that sounds fun. Like, it didn't hurt me to read this. I'll be happy to see what could possibly be happening in the sequels. I'm moderately curious. How do you feel about how this measures up against the other Collins we've read? Better. And Hannah. I mean, better. He feels engaged with the material, which is a huge step forward. I kind of liked his Tommy Lee Jones-isms in <laughs> U.S. Marshals. But uh, yeah, this this is probably a better book, objectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was partially uh, propelled to defend this one because I was so shocked that I was reading a Collins that was really doing something for me because I haven't liked him in the past. Annie Kelly, what do you do? Why do you do it? Where can it be found? And when? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm the UK correspondent for QAnon Anonymous, and we actually now have a little mini-series, Julian and I, from that podcast out called Man Clan, which looks at the weird world of masculinity influencers online. You can find that at QAnon Anonymous on any podcast app, Um, and you can find me at twitter.com annie k and k to our listeners please do rate our podcast please do review it please do subscribe uh we also have a patreon it's patreon.com slash authorized pod was there something else i wanted to say i guess not uh annie thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me yeah thank you as usual i'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature please do tweet at authorized pod if you recognize what this is from listen nitty said o'sullivan i want connor looney and i want him fast how fast are we talking mr o'sullivan nitty groaned oh i don't know how about saturday good night So, Road to Perdition, of course, based on a graphic novel, many stunning images in this film, and the question that I put to you is, was this image from the film, Road to Perdition, inspired by the graphic novel, or by the night that Sam Mendes found me in an aqueduct in Berkshire? (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I, I don't know what is up for interpretation here. These are both... Literally. He was location scouting. So I'm going to show you a screen grab from the film Road to Perdition, and you're going to buzz in with your first name, uh, whatever that may be, and let me know whether you think that this is adapted from a panel of the comic or that other situation. All good? Gotcha. Okay. Okay, great. Up first, this. This I think that Uh, looks... Before you answer, what are we looking at here for the listener? Uh, So we're seeing a little boy um, riding on his bike. 
uh, across some snow and it's framed by some structure looks like it could be like an iron bridge or something like that mm-hmm. and what is your guess my guess is that that's inspired by the graphic novel because it looks very graphic novel-esque yes we have this is inspired <laughs> by my time in the aqueduct with sam mendez there is no analog for this in the graphic novel in November 1997, while visiting my father's cousin in Berkshire, England, I awoke it's in just, the icy chill of a Berkshire. cave. Oh. <laughs> I... uh, Andrew's a terrible Annie? American, so you Annie? have to forgive Annie? him. <laughs> Annie, I, I'm putting him on blast right now. I messaged frequent guest of the podcast, Gavin G. Smith, before this to say, we're having a British guest on, how do you pronounce Berkshire? And I gave him alternate pronunciations, and he said Shire, like the Hobbit. Oh my gosh, no, that's so wrong. No, nowhere in, in England like pronounces it like Shire. This isn't like a regional thing. He's not like a northerner or something like that. No, no, like, oh. I think everybody would say Berkshire. Oh my God, I got set up. I was going to say, it. yeah, he was, he was having fun with you. <laughs> he wanted you to be embarrassed in front of Annie. Oh. Yeah, this is a say Berkshire and all sins are forgiven situation. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, Andrew. But is is Sam uh-huh. Sam Mendes isn't British, right? So he wouldn't have known. I think he is British. He is British. I believe he is. Yeah. Yeah, Mendes is British. This um, night at the Aqueduct is that um, Max Allen Collins's night at the Aqueduct, or your personal night? No, at this the is Aqueduct? me, Andrew Orby. I was this six years Andrew's old. So <laughs> let's let's hear it. As the listener doesn't know, although you can, of course, always find these on the Instagram, a huge block of text has come up. (laughs) And it does, of course, say, in November 1997, while visiting my father's cousin in Berkshire, England, I awoke in the icy chill of a cave to the sight of Sam Mendes fishing my rented bike out of rushing water. He lowered his advanced copy of the memoir Jarhead, attempting to stow it in a plastic bag that kept blowing away. Eventually, he was so captivated by the beauty of the bag that he simply watched it tumble. Everything is provocative, he offered. I will cherish the image of your innocent bike riding, unaware of the crash ahead. I will stow it and keep it. This entire interaction was in one continuous shot. So these are jokes? Oh, yeah. What an auteur. No, this is, this is Andrew's life story. Um, I feel like everybody's in on a bit that I'm still trying to figure out as a bit. No, thank, thank you for sharing sharing that with us, Andrew. Yeah, I, uh, is I'm it a bit to... that Jarhead is based on a book? You're kidding me. Huh. No, he, Jarhead, which he directs, is apparently based on a memoir, a real memoir. I don't think Jarhead's like two through seven are. Yeah, but... there, there's a lot of those. <laughs> okay, so Hannah, in case you're confused on the conceit here, obviously this is based on a graphic novel, so he took many of the visuals from there. But I know, and only I know, that he took many of the visuals from me and our experience together in the aqueduct. Up next, is this an image from the graphic novel Road to Perdition or that other situation? Johnny. Johnny. What are we looking at? Well, it, it, it looks like uh, it's sort of a, 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 a the, the road to Chicago, which which I don't know. It, to me, it looks lifted straight from uh, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. But I'll, I'll <laughs> take your word for it that it's the movie. I, I just watched this. I think this is, looks familiar enough. Uh, and yeah, uh, I would say that having read the graphic novel 19 years ago, <laughs> I am pretty sure that this is directly lifted from an image from the graphic novel. 
Yes, this is from the graphic novel. There are various shots of the city, none exactly like this. Uh, Mendez doesn't seem to like directly lift panels, <clears throat> but this one in particular has a lot of Chicago stuff going on mm-hmm. um, that I thought was pretty. So cool. your your comparison here is that the city of Chicago is present. No, no, there's <laughs> other there's other panels that have like the bridge or whatever. I'm just saying, like this is obviously taken from. The graphic novel in some way, as opposed to, like, invented whole cloth. Okay. It looks that... nothing like Berkshire. I actually Is thought that... I was going to get bonus points because uh, I, I actually thought you were trying to trick us with a still from The Untouchables. I really did. Hmm. <laughs> um, Annie, you were saying it doesn't look like Berkshire? No, Berkshire does not look like that. So that's another clue. Yeah. <laughs> that's another clue. <laughs> I, I'm always blown away when I watch this movie about how... Given that cars are, like, the only technology in the shot, this block of Chicago looks exactly the same these days, 90 years later. Mm -hmm. Every time it comes up in the movie, I'm like, they fucked up, they forgot to make it the past. I think I recognize it from my visit a few years back. Up next, is this a shot... What is it? How's it go? Is this shot inspired by the graphic novel or that other experience? Hannah. Hannah Blackman, what are we looking at? Um, baby Tyler Hecklin has just seen a murder. He's like crouching against a gate. And I'm going to say that because it is so wet, it's aqueduct. Mm. This is sound logic. Mm. This is, of course, the graphic novel. <laughs> and here's the shot of him mm-hmm. crouching against the gate, being sad because of bloodshed. Up next, is this image inspired by the graphic novel or that other thing? And I, I feel like it's important to state that uh, this is not only an image of this guy smoking, but Tom Hanks is over his shoulder. It just doesn't, it's not super apparent in the slide. Yes. Uh, Johnny, I, I would say this is the graphic novel because, as we know, uh, Andrew would never smoke a cigarette, especially near an aqueduct. <laughs> and not as a child. So true. Yes. <laughs> This is, of course, from the graphic novel, uh, and yes, here is a similar panel uh, where he comes in and he says, you know, I know you'd rather have found Mr. Looney waiting for you, but I'll just have to do, and then that man doesn't fare too well. Up next, is this image based on the graphic novel Road to Perdition or the aqueduct thing? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. I'm going graphic novel. What are we looking at here? We're looking at, I think that's Jude Law way back there, under a bridge. This is like a really cleanly composed middle of the shot, you know, one point perspective. Feels graphic novel-y to me. Jude Law really painstakingly walking directly at the center of this alleyway under the bridge. Like, just Mm -hmm. to make it look real cool. Yeah. This is like unplaceable in Chicago, by the way. There's just so many (laughs) places under the L that you can walk. This is, of course, Aqueduct. (laughs) I was shocked to discover this wasn't in the graphic novel. What I love about aqueducts, Mendez told me, unprompted, is how they're like roads for water. They can run under buildings, through mountains, and against gravity. I am transfixed by roads of any kind and have at least one, but less than three movie ideas about roads. (laughs) And train tracks are like roads for trains. As I watched this genius's dissociation take full form, I felt the hypothermia begin to set in. (laughs) Up next, 
Is this image based on the graphic novel or another experience? So it's Jude Law this... coming out of a, a, a radio station or, or oh, a mm-hmm. radio store uh, and a little general store. He, he, he's wielding a Tommy gun, which, you know, back then, commonplace on the streets of Chicago. I would say that's the graphic novel. This is, of course, the graphic novel. Now, Hannah, before you get on my case, the Comixology app that Amazon offers to those of us who don't have ebook readers is horrible and it crashes all the time so this is a panel in the book but i could only pull up a related panel because it kept crashing on me (laughs) no that's close i'll allow it yeah the one i've pulled up is uh the the main character michael o'sullivan coming up behind his son with a gun oh okay yeah up next is this image from the graphic novel road to perdition or from that aqueduct anecdote hannah hmm Hannah, what are we looking at? We're looking at a little boy laying in the snow. He's got a little pipe in his mouth. And while I do think this may be in the graphic novel in some form, due to the sequence of child cold, I'm going to go aqueduct. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, you are correct. This is the aqueduct. I would kill for a blanket, but not really kill. You get it. I moaned. So cold, my shivering had stopped. Whoa, Sam Mendez barked, whipping out a handheld video recorder. Say that again so I can film the first part out of context. I'll tag (laughs) it onto the beginning of my plastic bag film. Like I always say, it doesn't matter how you grab an audience, as long as they feel grabbed. My eyes began to adjust. In horror, I registered that Sam Mendez did not appear to be passing through. The aqueduct was set up like an office, and the bikes of those who'd come before me were strewn in the shallow water. Are you implying that Sam Mendes is some kind of child serial killer? (laughs) Killer of children? I claim parody! (laughs) Andrew, did Sam Mendes ever follow you to a movie theater and then base Empire of Light on your story? (laughs) I haven't seen that movie, but yes. Have fun with that one, let me tell you. Also, to anyone that's listening, I'm not accusing him of being any sort of child molester, just that he kills them. (laughs) Up next... Is this image based on the graphic novel Road to Perdition or the Aqueduct fiasco? Hannah. Johnny. Hannah, what are we looking at? We're looking at Tom Hanks feeling feelings in front of some candles in a church. I'm going to say this is graphic novel. This is, of course, the graphic novel. And here's... Okay, I'm confused by comic books, by the way. They release them like as a series, right? And then they republish them as a collection sometimes depends the collection and the individuals have different art styles oh interesting Hmm. this is from one of the individuals and i kind of like the art a little better with the darker lines i do think that maybe the graphic novel was uh you know after the release of the film might have been republished with some you know some changes to Mm -hmm. make it a little more reader friendly for those wanting to uh to look at you know what the uh where, where the source came from my skimming of the graphic novel, it seems like it's way more intricate. There's like a part where uh, he talks to uh, Elliot Ness in the graveyard for like ages. Oh. Anyway, our final question, and Hannah, do you have a pulse on who's winning here? Well, Johnny and I are both tied with two points, and Annie has one. Amazing. Final question. Is this image from Road to Perdition, the graphic novel, or from the aqueduct that partially inspired it (laughs) johnny Uh, 
Johnny, what are we looking at? Okay, we're looking at a uh, seemingly dead body that is stabbed with a knife, and Jude Law is in the background, sort of, sort of out of focus, but about to take his picture. But we're about to be—it's re- about to be revealed that this dead body is not dead at all. He's just unconscious with a knife in his chest. But that's not going to stop Jude from finishing the job. And uh, just because I want to hear the story, I'm going to say <laughs> aqueduct. This is, of course, the aqueduct. <laughs> yes! So anyway, I died. I've been narrating to you from beyond the grave, which was unheard of in 1997 and proved to be the ultimate way in which I inspired Sam. In releasing a film with the same framing device, he both wowed audiences and revealed that not a single person who watches movies has ever seen a play. As I passed from this world to the next, Sam looked through his camcorder and said... I'm not the type of sicko who would enjoy this tableau, but it could be fun to watch a guy who is. Well, that was a it was a tragic story, Andrew, but it's good to know that your death inspired such great art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the movie a lot. Yeah. I just want my due. And yeah. this really is uh, a perfect bookend to Annie's previous episode of The Sixth Sense, now discovering that Andrew has been dead the whole time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, we've come full circle.